most of my childhood memories involve me being sick. My first, like one of my first memories is being in the hospital when I was three. Uh, It's like, it's up there with like my third birthday. Like that's when I start remembering things. Mm -hmm. Hey there. I want to welcome you to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. In this episode, I talked to Becca about how she had Giardia as an infant, pediatric migraines, having brain surgery twice, the wonders of high-sodium diets, and her video game web series, Millennial Fair. We cover her Arnold Chiari malformation, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and dysautonomia. This episode is the fourth in our series celebrating Dysautonomia Awareness Month. On In Sickness and In Health, I plan to feature a wide variety of health experiences, but dysautonomia is personal for me. It affects me every single day and has for most of my life. So I wanted to kick off the show with a series of interviews about something very close to my heart. I want to make clear that the In Sickness and In Health podcast or any of its associated content is not medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified and timely medical help. I know this system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. We're all going through this together, and I cannot stress enough how different we all are, even if we were to have identical medical files. There are so many factors that go into shaping a person's experience of health and illness, and just because something worked for one person does not mean it will work for you or anyone else. I want to ask my audience to remain respectful of the very personal decisions of my guests, and remember that the choices of others do not reflect or affect your own choices. Um, I remember when I was, I think I was about eight months old, um, they found a, a parasite in the drinking water. In I, I grew up in uh, New Jersey in like the suburbs, and in this like, you know, wealthy Bergen County, you know, uh, town, they had Giardia in the water. And, oh my God. Yeah. And so for an adult, it's, you know, you're, you're sick for a while. My boyfriend actually got it, um, a while ago, uh, when he was on vacation. Um, but when you're an infant, it's like, it's, you can die very easily from being dehydrated. And my mom's told me stories about how, um, I was crying cause I was sick, but I had no tears cause there was like just nothing left in me. Oh. Um, and I, I had to keep going back to the doctor for years because I never really fully, my, I guess my stomach never really fully recovered from it. Um, I mean, it, for the most part, it's okay now, but uh, up until I was like in middle school, I had so many stomach issues and they said it was from damage from that because I had it and I didn't know what it was for a long time because they're not going to test for it you right. know, since I hadn't gone on vacation or anything. Um, and they found out and then they put a newspaper article out being like, there's Giardi in the water. That's why everybody's sick. And uh, there's a picture of me like being all gaunt and like, I, I look like a little African baby, like that hasn't eaten in months because like my stomach is all swollen and it was just, it was unpleasant. And so my, one of my first memories is going to the doc, going to the hospital, staying overnight while they did stool samples. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's one of my first memories. It was awful. Look for all the episodes in our Dysautonomia series in your podcast feed 
or check insicknesspod.com. The nonprofit Dysautonomia International has been working hard to raise awareness, and their slogan for the Awareness Month is Make Some Noise for Turquoise. So that's exactly what we're doing. If you want to know more about Dysautonomia, go back to Episode 1, Dysautowata. The president of Dysautonomia International gives us a crash course on just what dysautonomia is. We talk about the diagnostic delay that many patients face and some of the research that her organization has been able to fund. I interviewed multiple people with dysautonomia because it can affect individuals with different primary diagnoses in drastically different ways. Myself and each person that I interviewed have a form of dysautonomia called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I know it's a mouthful. We call it POTS for short, but POTS is only a small piece of what each of us have going on. Like myself and yesterday's interview subject, Becca also has EDS and POTS. If you want to know more about both, go back and listen to episode three, Accessibility Means More Than Ramps Part 1. We discuss the challenges and surprises of living with the two, but Becca has another obscure and weird-sounding diagnosis to share with you. She has something called Arnold Chiari malformation, which basically means... My brain is falling out of my skull, is what I... <laughs> yeah, it's herniating out of my skull. Well, not it isn't anymore, but it was. And uh, it causes just a whole slew of weird, weird symptoms that just are not connected at all. So everything is just so out there, and it's, it's really scary, actually. Mm-hmm. We all have a hole in the base of our skull called the foramen magnum. That's Latin for great hole. It's through this hole that the spinal cord is supposed to descend from the brainstem. In people with Chiari, that hole is often smaller than normal. And the lower hind part of their brain, the cerebellar tonsils, actually start to protrude through. It's thought that problems with the flow of cerebrospinal fluid are responsible, at least in part, for the bizarro symptoms that many Chiari patients experience. We still don't really know why Chiari malformations happen. They can occur on their own or in combination with conditions like EDS and are also associated with POTS. It is thought that the majority of patients with Chiari have had it since birth. There are five types of Arnold Chiari malformation, each involving symptoms stemming from problems where the brain and the spinal cord connect. Um, I know it's based on the size of your herniation. Um, I actually don't know. I'm not entirely sure what mine was. I was a little too young to kind of pay attention to that. Yeah, that's understandable. (laughs) Becca will talk more about living with Chiari, EDS, and POTS in the rest of this episode. Tomorrow's episode is the last in our dysautonomia series. Kathy will tell us about trying to find balance in managing and thinking about her condition, the spoon theory, parenting with chronic illness, and how her condition has affected her music career. She lives with rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, POTS, complex chronic headaches, and interstitial cystitis. So I hope you'll subscribe and tune in to In Sickness and In Health. We have a lot of great stuff coming up for you, including the episodes celebrating Dysautonomia Awareness Month that are up this week. You can find us at insicknesspod.com and on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at insicknesspod. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Google+. We'll be posting updates and content related to the show on the In Sickness and In Health blog and on social media. If you can take the time to rate and review us on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your doctors. 
and stay with us right now to hear the rest of my conversation with Becca. I feel very fortunate that my grandmother was a nurse for many years. Um, so she she's very educated and she's uh, very she's also very pushy. So when every, anything was wrong, she always kind of forced my mom to go to the doctor or even, you know, my, my dad or, you know, anybody else. And, um, so I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I, I was able to get diagnoses like pretty quickly. Um, cause it's been sort of how my life has been. And for my entire family, just everybody goes to the doctor all the time. Um, growing up at least I've kind of changed that a little bit um but also my mom is she was in a ski accident a couple years ago now she's disabled because of it and um my brother has uh rheumatoid arthritis and for years for years he was sick um and he's finally got under control but you know that was also a thing that was going on for many years so it's not none none of this is new to anyone (laughs) so the sort of chronic illness thing is I'm not the only one in my family who has it so it's so that's good and I'm also I think uh makes it kind of easier for my family to to kind of deal with it because it's not just me it's not just I'm not just the problem child that's always sick did your brother have a hard time getting diagnosed yeah he had a very hard time um he He's very athletic. He's always been really into sports, but he's also always been um, overweight. But nobody could really understand why because, you know, we ate the same foods as, like, my mom and my dad. And, you know, uh, and he was way more athletic than I was because I was always sick. But, you know, he was on the baseball team, the hockey team. You know, he was on the track team. He did everything. And it just never really made sense why he was always having all these joint issues. And they thought it was because of his weight. And, um, and it actually, you know, it put a huge strain on his athletic ability as he got older. Like, senior year of high school, he couldn't play any sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until he was in college where it was, like, to the point where he, was, he couldn't even get out of bed. He's like, you know, I know I need to exercise, but I, can't, I just can't do it. And um, they thought he had lupus for a long time and uh, a couple other autoimmune conditions. And eventually, uh, he had to – he lives in New England. He lives in Maine. Uh, he had to go to Boston uh, to finally get a diagnosis of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And now he has to take really expensive and uh, strong medication. I'm pretty sure he's taking some sort of cancer medication at this yeah. point. It's expensive and it's harsh on your immune system. And yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what you've been diagnosed with and what exactly does that mean for you? Well, I guess the base of it is I was diagnosed with Arnold Chiari malformation when I was 11 years old. I think, yeah, I was 11 years old. Um, that has kind of been the biggest factor in my life because it has caused so many other issues um, or it is the cause of so many other issues that I have. Right. So that's, uh, that's the big one. And then I was diagnosed with EDS and POTS back in February of 2013, I want to say, after I fainted at work. <laughs> and uh, they took me in, and my heart rate was, I think it was like 160 when I was standing. And yeah. um, they kept me overnight. 
And they actually thought I had a tumor on my adrenal gland called a pheochromocytoma, I believe yep. is what it's called. Yeah, they're really rare, but But that's... my grandmother had one. Oh, really? Yeah, she diagnosed it herself because, you know, she's a boss. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she... Everybody thought that I had one of those because she had had one. So I had to stay overnight in the hospital for like three days. And they did two 24-hour urinalysis tests to check for that. Mm -hmm. Those are like these symptoms, they match. And, you know, and uh, I got fortunate that, you know, because I didn't have a tumor on my adrenal gland, which is excellent. um, They were like, okay, so you probably have this condition called POTS because you have Arnold Chiari. Um, and they kind of go hand in hand. So about a month later, I got a phone call from a um, electrophysiologist's office uh, to schedule an appointment for a uh, a tilt test. And it, that's a test where they lay you on a table and they stabilize all of your your vitals and they keep you know they monitor them and then they stand you up and you stand there with your arms out like this for what feels like a million years to see if you faint and it is a miserable test because you're not allowed to do anything that would that you would normally do right to prevent yourself from feeling awful like you can't eat you can't drink can't take your meds you can't eat any salt you can't do anything and then they just watch you look miserable and hope you faint and <laughs> it was awful it was awful but I didn't faint but my my um my heart rate stayed very high and my blood pressure dropped significantly. And um, I think I was only up there for a half hour, but oh my God, it felt like days. It yeah. Was, yeah. Mine was only 20 minutes, but it felt like forever. It was, it was just one of the worst experiences. And I remember hearing about the test and being like, oh, that's not so bad. But mm-hmm. when you actually have to do it, it's awful. And I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. <laughs> Mine actually wasn't that bad. Really? Yeah, it was much worse the fact that they, you know, they had told me to fast from the night before. So I hadn't eaten anything and I couldn't take my medication. And then they told me to get to the hospital two hours before the test. So Mm -hmm. I did. And then the doctor showed up to the test two hours after it was scheduled for. Yeah, he always showed up two hours late to every appointment I had with him. And like, I'm... I'm totally fine with waiting for doctor's appointments. Like I am, I'm sympathetic to the challenges of working on an appointment basis, you know, like things happen. (laughs) I get that. But two hours every single time, like that's unacceptable. (laughs) So I was sitting in a hospital gown, freezing, not having been able to eat or anything like that for, you know, four plus hours. And I, by the time the test actually rolled around, I was like, wouldn't anyone have pot symptoms yeah, right? at this point? Like I haven't eaten. I haven't like all I've been able to drink is water. So I'm just flushing all of the electrolytes out of yeah. my body. Yeah. Did you drink water? They didn't even let me drink water. They wouldn't even let me watch TV. Yeah. I brought a book thinking, you know, I could like sit there and read while they, cause they told me that they had to, <laughs> I had to lay there for a long time to like stabilize my right. vitals. So I brought a book and they're like, Nope, can't do any of that. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any other diagnoses or like weird stuff that comes along with any of that? Not really. I mean, just every day is kind of a, a challenge, you know. Um, I'm lucky that that's kind of what it is. But every day I, I'm kind of waiting for something else to happen because I feel like that's just how my life is. Is yeah. You know, every day there's something, you know. Like I, I've had cysts on my ovaries. I, I've had, you know, like just 
anything and everything, and every day is a new surprise. But those are the three, the three big things that I, I feel like have the most influence on my life mm-hmm. at this point. Can you just talk a little bit about the like the symptoms that were associated with your Chiari? You know, before you even had your first surgery, they were also weird. I remember I was in second grade and. Um, we used to have to sit, we would have like a carpeted area of the classroom and the teacher would read or do like some sort of little lesson plan on the floor while we all sat on the carpet. And I remember um, having to sit there and just kind of my head just kind of tilting to the side and I would put it back up, but I just kept, I couldn't hold it up. And, you know, everybody thought I was just being disruptive. I'm like, I, I really, I really can't hold my head up. Can I sit at my desk? And, um, of course, they're like, no, you have to sit on the floor. Everybody else is sitting on the floor. Like, you don't get special treatment. And that was kind of the first symptom that I had was just a heavy head. And uh, things kind of grew from that. Um, I wouldn't be able to see the blackboard random days. Like, you know, I would go to the eye doctor and they'd be like, oh, you're fine. And I'm like, well, I'm fine today. But yesterday I wasn't fine. And, um, you know, everybody just kind of told my mom, like, you know, she just wants attention, you know, mm-hmm. she's just being a brat, you know, and uh, he, she agreed, she's like, yeah, she probably is, like, she's fine now, like, you know, she never really complains that much at home, and it's because, you know, when I'm at home, you know, I can move when I want to, I can right. sit the way I want to, you know, like, I don't need to read a blackboard from, you know, 15 feet away, and, um, but then it started to develop into like tinglings in my hands and my feet. And, um, and then the headache started when I was probably in fifth grade. And, you know, not too many 10 year olds get migraines. Um, and I did. I really? was a 10 year old with migraines. Yeah, they started oh. when I was like seven years old. Really? And at that, yeah, and at that time, like the diagnostic criteria for migraine was still very. Um, just very narrow. And there was no diagnostic criteria for pediatric migraines, you know, right. like they thought that children didn't get migraines. Um, that has since been re- revised extensively. But like, you know, they sent me to a pediatric neurologist, they did a workup. And then they were like, well, I guess it must be psychosomatic, you know, and then just shuffled me off to a psychiatrist. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, and I would get migraines, but then also in between getting migraines and like everyday, you know, life, I would have really severe headaches that would kind of fluctuate between just like stiff shoulders um, to sinus pressure headaches, even though there was no reason for that. Like I wasn't sick, there was no allergens or anything like that. But like every day I had a headache to some extent or another. Um, And it wasn't until I was in sixth grade I was in, I had just started a new gymnastics group, um, and I was super excited, and it was like the second or third day I was there, and I was on the tumble track, which is like a long trampoline, and to do like a, like a handspring or something, and when I landed, I, I landed fine, but I just had this lightning bolt of just severe pain throughout every inch of my body, and I just fell over. And everybody just kind of thought that I just didn't land it, but I was fine. It was just like, 
I, I was in shock. I was scared. I was crying. And they're like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? I was like, I'm, I was in so much pain. I'm fine now, but I was in so much pain. And so they called my mom. And uh, my mom picks me up and she's like, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to do something about this. And uh, that's how I got diagnosed. But for a long time, like you said, they were like, it's in her head. She's just being a brat. You know, she just wants attention for a long time. And eventually yeah. they came up with a diagnosis and I had to have brain surgery. And everybody who, you know, doubted me was like, oh, we're sorry. <laughs> How many doctors did you have to see before you got that diagnosis? Um, I actually only went to two. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, uh, I had the same pedi- pediatrician my entire life. She was the one who diagnosed my uh, Giardia after years. She was, she had saw me when I was born, and then she took like a leave of absence. And then my mom called her when she found out that she was back and was like, "Please see her," and um, she diagnosed me. So. She had a, a uh, I had a long history with her, and so when we went in, she was like, you know, I could send her for a whole bunch of tests, but I want to rule out any sort of brain issue. So let's get her a CAT scan and an MRI. And uh, it was right there on the MRI, Arnold Chiari malformation. And this was kind of pre-Google. This was a little too early for Google, and my mom went to the library and was, like, looking for books about it. And... Um, I went to a bunch of doctors after that, but I remember getting the diagnosis pretty quickly from my pediatrician. And so with the Chiari, you had a decompression surgery yes. for that. Yep. When did you get that done? I actually had to have it done twice. Oh, um, fun. Yeah, it was a great time. Um, I was diagnosed in December of 2000, I want to say, and I was decompressed the first time in 2001 in January, right after New Year's. I remember, I feel I'm really lucky. I live right outside of New York City. So I was able to, my mom and I, and one of her good friends who is a, uh, she's a nurse for a neurosurgeon, uh, but she lives in, I think she was in a, uh, Colorado or something at the time. So she flew out to come with us to see all these doctors in the city. Um, so, you know, cause she knew what a lot of the mumbo jumbo they were saying was and could translate it for my mom. And, uh, we found this one doctor who was like world renowned. Um, anybody who needed any sort of like pediatric neurosurgeon, like wanted to go to him and, you know, we met him and he was a very friendly and exciting guy. He definitely was, you know, like a mad scientist. And, uh, but my mom was really you know, she's like, I think this is the right guy. So he did the surgery. This operation is meant to create more space around or decompress that hole at the base of the skull. This is done by removing a small portion of bone at the back of the head, which is called a suboccipital craniectomy. These steps expose the protective covering of the brain and spinal cord called the dura. The bone removal relieves compression of the tonsils, and sometimes that procedure alone may restore normal CSF flow. Depending on the size of the herniation, the surgeon may take steps to shrink the tonsils. This shrinkage ensures that there is no blockage of CSF flow and is then patched with synthetic or biological material. The enlarged dura opening and the space around the tonsils provide relief for many patients. But if you haven't figured it out by listening to the episode so far in the dysautonomia series, patients like us never quite go as planned. And 
we're not sure exactly why they did this, but when they were talking about my surgery, they said that they were they have to put a patch on your Dora. And they said, because they have to open it, so they have to patch it back up. And they said they were going to use uh, a bovine patch, the outer membrane of a cow's heart, I think is what they said they were going to use. And when I woke up from surgery, uh, the doctors were talking to my mom, and they said that they used Gore-Tex instead of bovine. Hmm. And my mom's like, Gore-Tex is like what they make jackets out of. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I have rain jackets that are made out of Gore-Tex. Exactly. So my mom's like, that's really weird, but you're the doctor. You know what to do. Um, And I think it was... I had a very long recovery. It, it was longer than expected. Um, I think I was at a school. I had tutors coming to my house. Uh, I think I was out for almost three months. I was like, it was. I know I was out for full eight weeks, but I think I went back. Like I would go one day, and then I would have a tutor come the next day for another couple weeks after that. Um, but they were they were really surprised. Like it shouldn't take that long to be able to you know get back to school and. Um, Eventually, you know, a couple months after that, I was fine, but then I hit puberty, and um, I had my period, and just, it was awful. It just, all the symptoms came back, and it got really hard to find another neurosurgeon who would look at me because they were convinced that it was hormonal, like my, mm-hmm. like my back pain that I was having. They're like, oh, that's just cramps, and, mm-hmm. you know, your migraines are, you know, you're becoming a woman. That's what happens. And my mom was like, oh, hell no, that's not what this is. You know, she, she can't do gymnastics anymore because I was, you know, I was really into that as a kid. You know, she can't do cheerleading. There's something wrong. And so we were eventually, it took about another six or seven months until I was able to, they were, the insurance company would let me get another MRI because they did one right after surgery. And they're like, oh, you're fine. Um, but they did another one and I had gotten a ton of scar tissue where the, where the Gore-Tex patch was. And so we found another neurosurgeon, uh, also in the city. Um, and, uh, he, he was like, you know, it's, you have a ton of scar tissue. It could be because of this material. It could also be because of, you know, hitting puberty, but regardless, we have to replace it. Um, so I had to have another surgery, but I recovered much, much, much faster. I think I was only out of school for three weeks oh, wow. at that point. I was in the hospital for a little bit longer. I was in the hospital for eight days, but then I bounced back so much quicker. And, you know, for the most part, I've been much better. Um, I'm very, uh, what's the word, sensitive to uh, spinal fluid pressure. So when I was in high school, I was getting the headaches again, but they were able to do an MRI and they were like, you're clear, but we have to do a spinal tap to check your spinal fluid pressure. Ah. And so they did that. I went to, again, I'm so fortunate that I live where I do because there's a Chiari Institute in Long Island. You know, it's hour and a half away. I was, so, I'm so lucky. And um, they did a spinal uh, a spinal tap there and you know it was high but it wasn't super high not to the point where they wanted to put a shunt in right away but um they released a lot of the pressure and I felt fantastic you know after the once things kind of leveled out and you could sit up again you know I was I was great um but they had to do it three more times because you know eventually it, it kind of it comes back but since then, I've been pretty good, you know, with that, in terms of that. And 
but I still have this like thing in the back of my head that's like, you might need to have a shunt put in one day or another spinal tap, you know, it's scary. Yeah, that's Those are terrifying. scary things. <laughs> yeah, spinal tap is pretty close to the top of my list of like things I don't want to ever have to do. It actually doesn't hurt that bad. Really? <laughs> like, saying, you know, I've had them done three times. They, you know, if you go to somebody good, you know, it's just kind of pressure, but it's the fact that they're sticking a needle this big into your spine is like, yeah, it's awful. That's the part that I'm like <laughs> not okay with. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you feel when you got that diagnosis? Like, did you feel relieved? Were you freaked out? And like, how do you feel about all of this stuff now? Well, with the Chiari, um, I was terrified because I, they told me right away that the only cure was to have brain surgery. And I'd never even had stitches before. And I was like, they're going to cut open my brain. Like, I was so scared. Um, but, you know, I feel like anybody who gets a diagnosis that, you know, means that they have to have some really invasive surgery or any sort of really intense therapy for it, whether it be drug or you know, surgery or anything like that is really terrifying. I, I, no matter how old you are. Um, but you know, for the Chiari, I was terrified, but when I was diagnosed with POTS and EDS, it was a little different. Um, it was more a relief because I was like, thank God they know what it is. And I'm not running around for the next three years. Like so many people, so many like horror stories I hear of people who have had problems their entire life and have just been told it's all in their head Mm -hmm. for years and I was so relieved that somebody believed me you know yeah just based on these stories I've heard yeah everybody's got a story about that they do (laughs) can you tell me a bit about your relationship with medication and like do you have any mixed feelings about it I do and I don't um I'm actually not on anything right now other than my birth control I was supposed to take they, they wanted to put me on um, Midadrin. Midadrin, yep. Um, but my insurance at the time was really awful. And I was kind of, the side effects really scared me. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't do it um, because right now things are pretty good. Um, I want to say 65% of the time I'm okay. The other, you know, other percent is... It is not that great, but it's, I know what causes my symptoms and I know how to relieve them. And I feel like that is a better trade-off than the the side effects that I was reading about. And that's kind of not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I, you probably shouldn't, you know, there's so many side, there's side effects to everything and mm-hmm. some, they're all sound awful, but I was really scared and I was like, you know what, the fact that my insurance won't cover it right now, or I was like, I'll just hold off. And if it doesn't, if I don't see any changes, if I don't feel any better, then I'll go back to it. But right. I, you can always take the medication at another time. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's been over a year. And I actually, like a few weeks ago, I was like, maybe I should try it now. Maybe now is the time. But it was like a week where I was really like, I, I had to call out of work because I couldn't, I could barely get out of bed. And that's when I was like, maybe, maybe I should go back and, and try it again or like go and try it. But I still haven't done it, and uh, I, I don't like medication, and there's no, I don't really have a good reason to not like it. I just, I'm just scared. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've been through a lot, you know, yeah, and, and for for a lot of us with POTS and EDS and, like, you know, all this other stuff, 
a lot of us have sensitivities to medication or yeah. uh, like under sensitivities to medication. And it's just, it's a, it's a nightmare. I'm on a ton of medications and I'm fine with that. But like every time I have to add a new one because I'm already on so much stuff that causes a whole bunch of problems. I have to worry about interactions and then right. like, I'm super sensitive to everything. So there's that too. And it's just ridiculous. It's scary. It's so scary to me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What are some of the things that like trigger your symptoms? You said you, you know, some of those. Yeah. Um, it's funny is because for so long I, I thought that I got car sick really easily and I guess I do, but, um, Oh man, it's bad. Like it's kind of different than like what most of my friends get car sick with. Like they get like nauseous or like, you know, something I, I get vertigo and you know, like I can't even, I can't even like look up directions on my phone while the car is in motion. Like yesterday, like I, I was coming back from Connecticut with my boyfriend and you know, he started driving and I was like, wait, I can't, I can't get the GPS going while the car is going. Like, cause then I'm, I'm out. It's awful. Um, being dehydrated, which you probably know is just the worst thing on the planet. Yes. Taking another <laughs> obligatory sip of Gatorade. Yeah, exactly. You know, like being dehydrated is just, is terrible. Also any sort of illness yep. um, really makes things worse. So like if even a cold will just is 10 times worse. And I like, had a stomach virus at the beginning of October and I'm, I'm not still sick with the virus, but I'm still sick because of like the fallout in my body from the virus. I had the stomach flu the, on New Year's Day, oh. and um, I, I remember like calling my mom. She's like, "Are you sure you're not hungover?" And I'm like, "I didn't even drink. <laughs> like, I'm not hungover. I'm dying. Like, I couldn't. And I, I was so sick for like that whole next like five days. And yeah. like, I wasn't sick with the stomach, but like everything was just slightly tilted. You know, it right. was just it was miserable. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, you, any sort of illness. Yeah. So you mentioned you're on birth control. Do you find that your hormones, like, coming and going mess with that at all? My hormones are so crazy. I've never been this insane in my life, but, like, I need to be on it. Like, I, I have to. But, oh, my gosh. Like, there, I, I, I have a temper now. I've never okay. had a temper before in my life. And I snap at people all the time. And I've never done that. And, yeah. and this is since you started the birth control? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because birth control actually for my pot symptoms has helped a lot because I'm on like one of the continuous ones, so I only get a period every three months instead of every month. Because if I get it every month, I spend like three out of those four weeks feeling super terrible. So yes. I just kind of space it out, and that's actually helped a lot and, and made me a lot more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, but my boobs hurt all of the time. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, I mean, compared to like my whole body feeling like that's it's about true. to fall apart, it's not that bad. But yeah, I guess that's yeah. something I should look into because I also, you know, I have terrible periods now, you know, and I get yeah, I'm more susceptible to to to, to my symptoms when I am on my period. Yeah. Now that I think about it, it's probably something I should look into. Yeah, I mean, there are so many options for birth control out there right now like it's it's a little overwhelming but everyone's body is a little bit different so some people have to go through two or three different ones before they find the one that works the best for them and that really sucks because you need to be on it for a few months to like really get a good idea of how it's affecting you and like that sort of thing so it's a it's a ridiculous process but 
uh, for me, it's made a huge difference. Yeah, that's definitely something I should look into because yeah. what I'm doing now is not working out. <laughs> I'm a terrible human being for seven days a oh. month. <laughs> Better only seven days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 30. Uh, did you have any like grand plans for your life that have been derailed by your health? Yeah, I've always wanted to travel. And, um, you know, I, I, my company did a, a trip to Costa Rica last year for like our holiday party was a trip to Costa Rica. And, um, you know, the thought of like getting sick in Costa Rica was so scary to me. And like this yeah. year we're going to Mexico and I'm like, I'm not doing anything that could possibly result in me fainting. Like there's just, I don't want any of that. Um, you know, we had a day trip plan to go hike a volcano. I'm like, I can't do that because if I faint on a volcano in Costa Rica, <laughs> I'm going to die there. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I can't go whitewater rafting because I can't risk anything happening to my head, you know. So things like that have been kind of put on hold for now. Um you know, I, I would love to go to Japan one day, but at the same time, like, I, I'm just so afraid of, like, ending up in a hospital in a foreign country where I don't speak the language. Yeah. And, I mean, it's scary enough to end up in a hospital in the United States when you do exactly. speak the language, and it's, like, still a nightmare. <laughs> you know, if you didn't speak the language at all, that would be really terrifying. I actually ended up in a hospital when I was in Italy, when I was oh. in Rome. Uh, something totally unrelated. I had a kidney infection um, that I was just kind of like, oh, I'm fine. I'm going to Italy. <laughs> right. I was on the plane and I was like, I'm going to die. Like, this is terrible. Why did I not go to the doctor before I left? And I tried to push through it. And then I was, I was, I was at the Vatican and I was like, take me to the hospital. <laughs> like, so uh, I ended up in a Roman hospital, but I was so lucky. I was so lucky that there was a, um, there was a woman, because they sent me to gynecology, um, there was a woman there who was waiting for test results, and she was, she was a pregnant woman. So there was a woman who was in the waiting room, had gone to dental school at NYU, and spoke perfect English, and she's like, I can help translate if you want, if you're comfortable with that. And I was like, yes, please help me. And uh, I was able to get some antibiotics, and they gave me some painkillers, because you know, it's, it's Rome, you know, here, here's a handful of Percocet. Um, and I was able to enjoy the rest of my trip. So it was That's really good. good, but I was so scared. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be in a hospital where nobody speaks English. Yeah. I mean, I think even more scary is to be like in America and need medical care. Yes. Like I read a story about a, a pregnant couple from Canada that were like in Hawaii on their honeymoon or something. And she wound up giving birth and it cost them a million dollars. I didn't pay anything when I yeah. was in Italy. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if you if you come here to visit and you end up in the hospital, like good luck. Hopefully you have some money saved up. Yeah. Oh god. Like you're you're going to be in a lot of trouble otherwise. Terrifying. Yeah. Uh, tell me about Millennial Fair. Oh, okay. So, um I guess it was probably back. It was back in the winter. Um, one of my friends and uh, my two my two coworkers and I decided that it'd be a really fun passion project to you know learn stuff with you know filming and editing and just kind of make some video game videos. Uh, you know we're all really into video games and it's just it's been a lot of fun. Um, we actually have come 
to, you know, we used to film in our office, but now I have space and I know this is audio, but behind me is my green screen uh, for when we do film here. And uh, it's it's been so much fun. You know, we don't get too many views. We don't get too many subscribers or anything, but it's it's really just an awesome passion project. And we're all learning so much about just the million Adobe, you know, products that are out there and it's been so much fun and like weirdly rewarding like when we see one of our videos has over a thousand views it's like oh my god people actually care yeah. it's really cool it's really exciting yeah it's really neat that you can like just dick around and make something and then put it on the internet and like thousands of people can see it exactly it's re it's it's wild. It's really fun. Like we just hit 101 subscribers and we're like freaking out. We're like, I don't even know a hundred people. Like there's <laughs> people who we don't know who are subscribed. Like that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That is really neat. Yeah. What's your favorite thing that you've done so far? With Millennial Fair? Yeah. Um, we did a dating simulator called uh, Date Ariane and it is, yeah, it's just, a, it's a terrible dating simulator game. Uh, where you just point and click at, you know, your options. So she'll be like, what should we do tonight? And you pick, like, you know, the options are, like, eat dinner, have a drink, go outside. And the whole point of the game is to, like, like sleep with this girl, this character. And it's it's so cheesy. And um, But one of the, one of my millennial fair buddies, Adrian, is the nicest guy on the planet but he's a little awkward and so we we did the video together and he just pretends to hit on me the whole time and it's it's so cringy but it's hysterical he just hits on me the whole time and it's so cringy but it's one of our highest rated videos highest viewed videos and uh we kind of dismissed it and then one day just looking at you know what each video like the view count is and it's like 1000 views Who's watching this? And now, now I think it's up to almost three thousand. Like, oh wow! Yeah, it's really exciting. It's really fun, and uh, it's a really silly game. It's really, it's something else. <laughs> how much, uh, like, how much time does making this stuff take up for you? Uh, it used to take forever. Yeah. Um, now that we've kind of got it down to a science, it doesn't really take that long. Um, so what we normally do is we have there's a program on the computer that we use that captures the screen, that screen captures the game. Um, we have a little microphone that we use and uh, we have a, a camera. And so really the hardest part is, is just syncing them all up, is syncing up the gameplay with the video footage and the audio. And then, you know, just have to layer it properly in Adobe Premiere and then you're good to go. It's really not that difficult. It's, there is a learning curve to it, like with any Adobe product. Yeah. Um, but uh, when all things said and done, it probably takes about a half hour at most to, to make a, what we call a one shot, which is when we play a game and do a little commentary over it mm -hmm. to, you know, put it together. It takes about a half hour. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, so it really, yeah, it doesn't really take that long. At first, it took hours. Yeah. We had no idea what we were doing, but uh, it's been a while now, so we know what we're doing. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Have you had to, like, put that on, on hold or anything because of your health? Not because of my health, because I'm always sitting. Um, there's been a few times, actually, there's been a few times where uh, we've done videos that are not gameplay, where we talk about, uh, when we review other games, like older games, where I have to stand 
And there's been a few times where I'm just like, we have to stop, like, leave me alone. Let me just have a soy sauce packet and lay down and I'll be fine in a half hour and then we can finish. Um, that's happened a few times, especially in the summer because we were filming in our office and uh, there was no air conditioning. Oh, God. And we were on the sixth floor of a big building and I just, there was a few times where I was like, I can't do this anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky that they understand, but at the same time, like, I, I'm so lucky they understand because yeah. I get, because when I feel that way, I also get really snappy. Yeah. Especially now that I'm on birth control because, like, you know, I I just, like, shut up, leave me alone. Like, let me just <laughs> relax and get this over with. Yeah. Um, it's That's really the only time that that's really kind of been an issue. But for the most part, like, I'm always sitting. So that's that's good. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me a snapshot of a time when someone, like, said or did something that was really clueless or inconsiderate about your medical condition? Yeah. Um I really hate unsolicited uh, medical advice, um, and there was my ex-boyfriend and I, we were at dinner at his parents' house, and uh, it was pretty, it, was, it had been a while since my diagnosis, and like his family knew about it, and um, you know, they were very understanding of, of everything, and um, I remember one time we were at dinner and his mom was like, so how have you been feeling? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in, I've been doing really well. And uh, his grandmother was like, oh, I was thinking about you the other day. You know, I, I was thinking that maybe you should just rub your head more. And I remember, like, his mom just starts laughing. She's like, why would that do? What would that do? Like, grandma, like, why would that help? And she's like get the blood flowing up there and, and everybody's just like oh my god and I was so embarrassed I was like <laughs> oh man that 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 one really sticks out but then I've also had people tell me that I need to eat more red meat because I need more iron for some reason okay because that makes you dizzy and I'm like that's not what it is yeah. and people have also told me to stop eating so much salt uh-huh they're like you're gonna have really high blood pressure and I'm like my blood pressure is extremely low like right. I need more salt. The irony is not lost on me that, like, we're in a time where everyone's doctor is telling them to get less salt, and my doctor <laughs> is telling me to get more salt. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I recognize how weird this is, but this is my life. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about getting a Morton's, uh, Morton's Salt Girl tattoo because of how much salt they eat, you know? <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Carry around salt packets all the time. Uh, gotta love that salt. You do. It's delicious. I'm glad I like it. I couldn't imagine, like, hating salty food. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always ate so much salty food, you know. So yeah. then when I was finally diagnosed with POTS and I found out that, you know, the, the primary treatment for it is additional salt and fluids, I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense now. Yeah. You know? But even then, I liked normally salty foods. <laughs> so to be able to get the amount of salt that I was supposed to get was really a challenge at first because, mm -hmm. you know, I have to salt things to a ridiculous extent now. Yeah. Um, and now I just do the salt in my mouth thing, which yeah. seems to be the most, <laughs> the most efficient way of, of getting it. I'm a fan of soy sauce. Okay. Yeah. I like soy sauce packets because it... Yeah. They don't leave my my, te my teeth hurt sometimes when I just pour salt in. So I have uh, soy sauce packets in my desk, and I keep salt in my purse because I'd rather the salt packets break than a soy sauce packet breaking in my purse. Yeah, that's that's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> How has your health affected your relationship with your family? 
it's actually made it a little better. Um, I guess, I guess because I'm not the only one who's sick. So we all kind of are compassionate for one another because we're all kind of sick. Um, so that's good. I also feel like that my mom is definitely the most sick. So it is good that, um, I can still relate to her, but I can also help her out. Um, you know, she's never asked for help, but whenever I'm around or she's around, because sometimes she, she sees a lot of doctors in New Jersey, um, even though she doesn't live around here anymore. Um, you know, I always try to help out. I, and, and I think the fact that I have a level of sympathy that goes beyond just like, my mom's sick, to I, I know how hard this can be. Um, makes for a better relationship between the two of us. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Have but it's ha- also makes it, it's also stressful too, um, you know, because we're both sick. And, you know, sometimes we can't help each other, but um, we're both able to talk to each other almost mm-hmm. all the time. So that's, you know, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic to have yeah. somebody that you can talk to that, you know, gets it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you had any friends disappear on you? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, uh, shortly after my diagnosis, um, I was really sick. I was, I could really only go to work and I was doing short days and, um, I couldn't go out. And, um, a lot of, a lot of my friends thought that I was just ditching them. And, um, I wasn't, I no, it's not that I didn't want to go, you know, it's not that I didn't want to go to your birthday party. It's not, has nothing to do with you. I just can't do it, you know? And, uh, I remember there was, I have one friend who for three years in a row, I missed her birthday party. You know, one year was because I don't exactly remember what happened the first year. The second year I had a terrible allergic reaction to something. I still don't know what it is, but like my face was swollen. and I was like, I can't go. And then the third time was I was in the hospital after I'd fainted at work. And, uh, you know, everybody's like, she never hangs out with us anymore. And she was like, she's sick. Let her, leave her alone. And so, like, you know, she's still been one of my friends. But a lot of those people who are, like, trying to talk in her ear, like, she's not trying hard enough. You know, they've kind of, you know, moved away. (laughs) Moved out of my life. Well, it sounds like who needs them anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Like, at that point, you know. I don't want to be your friend if you don't think that, you know, if you don't have any compassion for it, you know, but. Yeah. What do you think might be different if people knew what you go through every day? What might be different? Um, I feel like people probably wouldn't give me such an attitude when I say I can't do something, Mm -hmm. you know. Sometimes it's as simple as I just can't get up and get myself a glass of water, you know, can you do that for me? And and most of the time people are like, yeah, sure, why not? But then sometimes people are like, you have legs, do it yourself, you know? Yeah. I, I just, right now, I just can't get up. Um, that's, you know, that that's kind of the big thing is I just wish people understood that, you know, I might look fine, but I'm really not okay right now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that for sure. Yeah. So is there anything that you beat yourself up for on a regular basis? I guess the fact that uh, 
I am so scared that I'm not going to feel well that I avoid things. Um, like, I, I could travel. I absolutely could. But I am just so scared that I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to get sick or I'm going to get there and I'm not going to be able to enjoy myself because I don't feel well. Right. And, and I end up not doing it. And that, I, like, I should just do it. But I can't get it out of my head that I'm sick. You know, <laughs> you should be taking care of yourself and not traveling. But like, you know, I have to live at some point. You know, I can't just stay in New Jersey the rest of my life. You know, I have to go out and try new things and do new things. But it's very scary when you have this thing in the back of your head that's telling you you're unwell. You need to, you know, watch out for these things and, you know, try to be safe and, you know, stay where you're comfortable in case something happens and, you know, that's, that's really what I beat myself up most about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I really can't travel, you know, no. every, every time I try, it yeah. is a disaster. So flying makes me feel awful. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to fly in several years. Just I mean, I just drove to Philadelphia a few weeks ago. And it was not a good idea. I'm glad I went. But like, I definitely should not have. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I, for me, it's not every day I feel awful. You know, it's some days I feel fine. Some days I feel I feel awful. Yeah. Um, so, like, I feel like I can do things like that. Uh, I feel like I can travel and, and you know, s- see the world. But I'm so scared that, you know, one of those few days where I feel awful is going to be, you know, the day that I'm in Paris you know, or, you know, even in, even in Philly, you know, like, you know, somewhere where I'm not familiar. Well, this is a good segue to my next question, which is, uh, what do you worry about with your health? And is there anything big or small that takes up a lot of space in your brain? Well, you know, being out of my comfort zone uh, is very scary. Um, Also, simple little things, like, if I go to the supermarket, and the line's really long, I'm like, Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I just don't go grocery shopping, usually. (laughs) Like, I just don't do it anymore because it's such a a nightmare situation. Yeah, you know, sometimes I, if the line is really long, like, usually when I go food shopping now is I can go through the express lane, which is sometimes just as long, but the stop and shop near my house is a really great one. (laughs) It's usually really fast. Um, But... It's so scary, you know. I, it's always there, you know. That going to the mall, like mm-hmm. I can walk. I can walk till you know, sun comes up. But I can't stand still. Yeah, that's so. Lines are just. I'm terrified of them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just scared of lines. I'm scared of. <laughs> They're terrifying for me too. I had to go to Party City yesterday. Uh, which is not something that you want to do on a Saturday that we no, before not Halloween. Like before Halloween. <laughs> yeah, that was that was not one of the the better experiences that I've had recently. <laughs> what are your goals and priorities with the management of your condition? I guess I would like my good days to be you know to be better because they're still not great. Um, you know, I think that. I don't think I'm ever going to be totally normal and I've come and I'm fine with that. You know, that's, you know, that's just how it is. And, and I'm okay with that, but I just, 
I want my good days to just be better because I, I can't really hope for my bad days to be less frequent, but I can, you know, I'm hoping that eventually that my good days will, I'll be able to do more in them as opposed to just kind of being a normal human being. You know, I'd like to feel, actu- actually feel good, mm-hmm. you know, the way I used to feel, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, I, I've always been sick. So there's been very few times where like, I've never that I've felt totally 100%, but there, there's been times and, you know, right before, maybe about a year before my POTS diagnosis, I had a really good couple months where I was like, this is amazing. Like I was, what's I was that great. like? I know it's so <laughs> weird. It, my head wasn't cloudy. You know, I think that's kind of one of my, my big symptoms now is just everything's slightly foggy all the time. And I remember like, I always have jaw pain now. And like, I remember just kind of waking up and, you know, it felt like I was breathing like really cool, fresh air all day. <laughs> you know, I can't <laughs> that really sounds delightful. It. Yeah. It was just like, it was euphoric in a way. And I'm like, I don't, this is great. This is great. I was, you know, I was in mentally the best state I've ever been in. Um, but it didn't last very long. And, you know, it'd be really nice to feel that way, you know, a few more times. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who was just diagnosed this morning? Be patient. Um, be patient, learn to recognize the signs that your body gives you. Um, you know, It's not, you're not going to feel better right away. And, you know, there'll be things that you'll see that will make you feel better. And then you'll also find things that make you feel awful. And, you know, just there's a lot of trial and error. So you just have to be patient with it until you can figure out, you know, what kind of medications, what kind of, you know, diet you need to be on, you know, what, what causes the, the big issues and, you know, what makes you feel better. And it's, you know, very... It's a uh, it, it's very tiresome, but just be patient with it. You'll eventually get through it. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for listening to In Sickness and In Health. Subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come. And keep an eye on your podcast feeds or our website for the last episode in this series celebrating Dysautonomia Awareness Month. We have been posting a new episode every day this week and can't wait to hear your feedback. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And tell your family, tell your friends, tell your doctors. But most important, don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.